chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, 18, 18, and here we read, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Syncrie he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up to and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, where he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Master, We humbly bow before your majestic presence this morning, looking to you for grace. Lord, we come to you as your children, seeking to feed. Feed at the master's table. We need to hear from you today, Lord. We ask you to speak to us through your word. I pray, Father God, for unction that your Holy Spirit would dwell and well up within me and fill me and use me as a vessel of honor to declare your truth. Give us eyes to see, hearts to understand, and may we have a clear understanding and perception of what your will is and what you want us to hear today as we examine the text before us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we delight to worship you and we delight in your word, and now we ask, oh Lord, feed us till we want no more, and may we behold wondrous things from thy law. In the name of Christ. We pray. I amen. When we become Christians, oftentimes we come to church and we wonder what is our place. As a new believer, you will walk in sometimes and you see, well, there's the pastor and there's the worship leader, and you begin to see those who have a, a more prominent role and 
They say, well, I'm not a pastor or worship leader. And you wonder, well, what's my role? What can I do in the church? And some people are not with the proper guidance, may be content to just warm the pew. They feel that the pews need, that seats need to be warmed well. They're cold, so they say, well, we'll warm the pews. Do we have anybody here that likes to be a pew warmer? It's just a joke. I'm only kidding. There's no need for pew warmers. But each and every one of us, when we're called to Christ, is given the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that means each and every one of us is gifted to serve. Each one of us has a gift, has a talent, has an ability to serve the local church. Not only to serve in the local church and serve the local church. And I'm not talking about the building or the institution. I'm talking about the people of the church. But also... We all have a call to being gospel witnesses in our life. We all have a call to share the gospel, to be be witnesses for Christ in our sphere of life, whether that be in our work, in our home, whether that be in our school, whether that be wherever God has called you, whatever sphere of influence you have, he wants you to be a gospel witness. And one of the things you quickly learn as you unpack the book of Acts is that there are other characters, there are other supporting characters that are helping to advance the kingdom. While it is true the book of Acts is mainly divided in two, with the first half focusing primarily on the ministry of the Apostle Peter and the, and the gospel advance in the kingdom in Jerusalem, and the second half is focused primarily on the work of Paul and the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles, there are many other supporting roles in the book of Acts of people that you quickly overlook and do not think are important, but have a vital role in advancing the kingdom of God. You know, as Paul is, in this text today, we see that uh, it is a transition passage. What do I mean by that? It's a transition passage because we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. And within this passage, we're also going to see the beginning of his third missionary journey. And we get a very brief glimpse. We don't get too much detail of what happens in between. Okay, so there are two main things that are brought out here. And um, I'm just going to ask, I hate to interrupt, but could someone please close that door in the back of the church? Thank you. Um, and so we, we see this transition between the two Um, uh, uh, the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey in this passage today. Now remember, the second missionary journey began all the way back in chapter 15 and 16. Um, Paul and Barnabas had a dispute. They They were a team on their first missionary journey. They broke up, you know, sadly. But Paul um, uh, forms an alliance with an elder in the church in Jerusalem, Silas. Uh, He and Silas go off and... uh, revisit the churches of Galatia, and they pick up another member of the team, Timothy. He's a young man, very promising, very enthusiastic, very gifted. And Paul endeavors to take him on board and raise him up and train him uh, for the ministry. Along the way, they meet a physician named Dr. Luke, who becomes uh, not only a, a vital member of the missionary team for Paul, but is the author of the very book we're reading. He chronicles the work of God through the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and, uh, and through God's uh, divine direction, Paul 
wanted to go into Asia Minor. That would have been the, the natural next step after uh, going through Galatia and Phrygia. Uh, but God had directed him through a dream and forbade him from going to Asia Minor and says, I want you to go to Macedonia, which was the green Greece, northern Greece. Um, and, and so Paul has had a very fruitful ministry, first to Philippi and Thessalonica, and then Berea, and then Athens, and finally Corinth, where he would remain for 18 months. The Lord had told him to stay put, be bold, and to keep speaking the truth. But something very important happened at the end of his second missionary journey, and I just want to rewind a little bit because it plays into what we're looking at today. And it's in verse 12. It says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, let's stop there for a minute. So, so this is very a crucial point in the book of Acts. It's a turning point, if you will. Well, why is it? I mean, I touched on it last time briefly when we were together. But if you recall in Paul's second missionary journey, whether it's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, and finally it culminated and climaxed in Corinth, uh, Paul had created and, and um, had invited the wrath of the Jews from town to town. Um, it started in Philippi. Not content in Philippi, they hunted him down to Thessalonica. Not content in Thessalonica, they tracked him down to Berea. And what they would do is every time he went to a city to plant a church, he would have to escape by the by the hair of his uh, by the, the, the tail of his skin, and he would have to get out of town before they got him because they wanted to kill him. Okay, they wanted to kill him, and so and so everywhere he went, he couldn't stay long. He was constantly on the run, and the Jews were just kind of building up this mob from city to city, and they were hunting him from city to city. Now, all these cities that he was going to you know, had their own various groups, people, you know, they had low-level uh, officials and Roman officials. But when he gets to Corinth, which is one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, 800,000 people live in the city, you just don't have uh, uh, politarchs like you did in Thessalonica. You have a proconsul. This is a regional representative of all of Achaia representing the Roman Empire, and Gallio is one of a very prestigious family. His father is Seneca. And his brother is a, is a, a senator back in Rome. This is a family with a lot of authority, a great political, powerful family. And it tells us the Jews brought a united attack. In other words, they said, here's our chance. We're going to go to the highest court, to the highest ruler in the land, to Gallio. And we're going to present our case, and if we can get him to agree, Paul is done. But what did the Lord promise Paul? What did the Lord promise Paul? You have to go back a little further in chapter 18 and verse 9. The Lord said to Paul, do not be afraid. Go on, keep speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are mine. And true to his word, through his divine providence, 
God had moved upon the heart of Gallio. Gallio ruled in favor, not of the Jews, but he ruled in favor of Paul. He ruled in favor of the church. He ruled in favor of Christ. It says the Roman Empire has nothing to do with these issues of your squabbles about the law. See to it yourselves. Do you know what a relief this brought for the Apostle Paul? That meant he could preach freely there and all those Jews who wanted to, you know, string him up, they all had to go back home. And so he was able to remain there for 18 months to serve Christ. I'm reminded of the verse in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. It's important that we pray for those in high places. It's important that we pray that God would bend the hearts of our rulers, no matter how wicked they are, to his will. Because ultimately, it is God who is directing the affairs of men, not men who are directing the affairs of God. God is sovereign, and he, uh, as, as powerful and as mighty as Gallio may be, and look at the providence of God. Gallio was only proconsul in Achaia in the city of Corinth for one year. After that, he was sent back to Rome. And eventually, Gallio would be murdered along with his brother by the maniac Nero. So in God's providence, Gallio was there for that short period of time that would extend Paul's ministry for a long time to come until Nero essentially rises to power, and everybody basically dies under Nero. Anyway, this brings me to the point today of the sermon, because in our sermon, we're going to see two things today. One, I want to look at in this transition period, how Paul demonstrates his thankfulness to God in this, and, and how the Lord intervened in this issue. But secondly, also, is to see how God was raising up new people to serve in the ministry. Number one, let's look at... Uh, uh, verses 18 through 23, and I, I, I call this first point a haircut and a voyage. A haircut and a voyage. It tells us uh, that uh, Paul stayed many days longer after this, after the ruling, and uh, he left. He left Corinth and set sail for Syria. That's where Antioch was, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. All right, so Priscilla and Aquila were two friends that he made. Uh, like himself, they were tent makers, and when he was alone in Corinth and had no friends, God sent him uh, this, this husband-wife team. And this husband-wife team, we're going to look at them a little today, would become very instrumental in Paul's third missionary journey. They would become great allies to the gospel. And, uh, and so we see how God raises up, and this is why I was saying, you don't know who the people are who are instrumental in the kingdom, and we all have a role to play. And this husband-wife team of tent makers who were banished from Rome uh, met Paul in Corinth, and they decide to go with him uh, to Syria, to Antioch, um, to meet the brothers and sisters there. Uh, we form bonds with each other as Christians, and it's always encouraging to meet other Christians. And so they, they leave, and they head to the port village of Syncrie, that is a few miles west of Corinth, and from there they would take a ship to Syria. So when Paul is at Syncrie, it tells us that he had his hair cut for he was under a vow. 
Now, obviously, Luke is not going to tell us about Paul getting a haircut simply because he wants to give us some details on his personal life, but as the context dictates, he had taken a vow. And so uh, what kind of vow would he have taken? It would have most likely been what is known uh, within Judaism as a Nazarite vow. Uh, We'll turn your Bibles for a second to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. And in the book of Numbers chapter 6, we read about what the Nazarite vow is. I can't read through the whole chapter, but I will read a little bit of it. In verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skin. In all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, his head, grow long. And then in verse 18, it tells us, if you go down a little bit, in verse 18, it tells us, And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the the peace offering. So what is this telling us? This is telling us that the Nazarite vow is a vow that any man or woman could take at any point in in their walk with God. It's a special vow. It's a time of consecration. It's a way of responding to God in a way of gratitude, of thanking God for what he has done. And in the expression of that gratitude, saying, you know what, Lord, you've been so good to me. I'm setting apart a part of my life and I am going to, you know, think of it as a fast. I'm going to consecrate myself. And part of that consecration means I'm not going to cut my hair. And that meant, you know, the hair of your head. um, And and I'm going to let it grow as long as, as it needs to for that designated period. And I'm not going to have anything that grows on the grapevine. Well, that might not seem too difficult for us here in 21st century America, but in ancient Israel, grapes were very much the center of life. Wine and grapes and, and uh, juice were, were part of your, your everyday diet. So to uh, abstain from that would have been uh, very difficult. It was an a- abstinence of pleasure. It was an abstinence of basically denying oneself pleasure for a period of time much like some Christians do for Lent during uh, the Paschal season. And so why did Paul do this? Well, I think, in, you know, I think if we look at the context, we kind of understand. Well, this has to do with what happened in Corinth. It was monumental. This ruling by Gallio had such an impact on the liberty and freedom for him to preach the gospel. I believe that from the time that that ruling was given to the time he went to Syncria, the port, to leave uh, the region of Corinth, um, he had taken a Nazarite vow. And it was a way of saying, thank you, God, for what you've done for me. Thank you for providentially uh, delivering me from the hands of the Jews. 
Thank you for giving me this freedom and this liberty and protecting my life. And now I'm going to dedicate part of my life to you. Now, was he falling back under the law? No, this has nothing to do with law keeping. Paul is far from under the law. But as a Jew with Jewish heritage, he saw this as indicative of a way of expressing gratitude towards the Lord. What about us? When God shows you grace in life, when God delivers you, when you're sitting there worried about getting a diagnosis of cancer and you're going for testing and the doctor comes back and says, you're free and clear, you got a clean bill of health. Do we express gratitude to God? How do we do it? We just say thank you for one minute of prayer or do we consecrate ourselves in a special way? Oh, what about when God delivers you, you get into a horrible car accident and you walk away and say, how did I get out of that alive? How, how am I even standing? Or what about myself recently where I had a hemoglobin rate of 5.5 and the doctor said, how did you even walk in here? You know, it, 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 it's very easy to be, take the, these things for granted when God shows us grace. It's very easy to take it for granted as if we're entitled as if we're entitled to this grace. But when God shows grace, we ought to show some expression of thanksgiving to him. There should be some way where we deny ourselves or we consecrate. I'm not saying that we should take Nazarite vows. But what I am saying is in, in the spirit of a Nazarite vow, we ought to devote ourselves more to the work of God. In other words, we need to sacrifice something and set aside more time for him and to his work and give ourselves to him. God doesn't show grace so that we could spend it on ourselves so that we could be more fruitful for him. Secondly, we see the voyage of Paul here. He cut his hair, he was underground, and he came to Ephesus. So he sets off from Syncrea to Ephesus. And it doesn't tell us much about what happened there. Um, it tells us that uh, it's a halfway point. Paul needs to get to Syria. Syria is where Antioch and where Jerusalem is. And he's really heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem because he has to burn his, the locks of his hair on the altar to complete his vow. Um, that's one aspect of it. But he stops in Ephesus. Now remember, Paul wanted to go to Asia Minor and his plan is to go to the big cities. And Ephesus is the capital of Asia Minor. It's, it's a big city. And so it's his, it's his intention to go there, but he makes a quick stop. He's in a rush. He has to get to Jerusalem, and he attends a synagogue service, and he does what he does. He reasons with the Jews. Um, but unlike previous times, he's in haste. And the King James Version, I believe, gives us a clue as to why. Um, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this passage, which is why the ESV doesn't. But I think that uh, looking at the King James Version and the Texas Receptus may give us an indication of what the scribes um, saw within the text as well. It says in verse uh, 20, uh, when they desired him to say uh, to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you if God wills. And he sailed from Ephesus. And so um, I think what's happening here is it's springtime, Paul wants to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, shipping doesn't begin till March 10th in the ancient world. They do, not, they do not do shipping. They do not sail boats in the Mediterranean in the winter. 
though the waters are too rough. And so he wants to get to Jerusalem for the Passover seat. He wants to complete his Nazarite vow. Um, and I think the evidence from, is from within. Because if you look at verse 22, what does it say? He lands at Caesarea, which is the, the shipping port in Israel. And what does it say he do? He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Well, he couldn't have went up to the church in Caesarea, although there was a thriving church in Caesarea that Peter planted. There was nowhere to go up. It was at sea level, Caesarea. Antioch is uh, definitely not up uh, in terms of altitude from Caesarea. On the other hand, throughout the scriptures, it is commonly seen that you go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is at a very high altitude. And uh, often when speaking about leaving Jerusalem to go into another town, it says we've gone down to. Um, going up to Jerusalem and down to Antioch would indicate that between the lines, Jerusalem is the church. Paul had went back to the church in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to minister to the saints there and then went immediately down to Antioch, his home church. Now it's interesting because all of that is within two verses and Luke gives very few details. And the reason why, I believe, is because Luke is not with Paul. Luke is still in Philippi. And so these are not important details that need to be known. There is nothing monumental that took place. However, what is important to understand is what takes place next. In verse 22, it tells us that Paul, had, after landing in Caesarea, greeted the church, and he went to Antioch, and after spending time there, he departed went from one place to the next through the region of Galatian for just strengthening the disciples. He spends about a year, possibly, most scholars assume, in Antioch with his home church, goes back to the mission field. This is the beginning of his third missionary journey. And where does he go? He goes back to the churches he planted. I think there's something important to see about the heart of Paul. This is not a man who's detached from the people in his life. This is not a man who just is on the move and like, okay, see you later, have a nice life. This is a man who forms bonds with people, who cares about the people in his life, who cares about the churches, who cares about the brothers and sisters that have helped him along the way. And he revisits those churches. He, he goes back to his home church and, and, and spends time with the people who sent him on his missionary journey. He goes back to Jerusalem to see the people who, who are praying for him and supporting him there uh, among the apostles. And he goes back to the churches, these little fledgling Gentile churches that he planted in, in, in Derby and Iconium and Lystra. And he goes there strengthening them and encouraging them, keep up the good work. This will be the, this is the third time he's visited this region of Galatia and Phrygia. He has a great heart for that region. And I think that this tells us a lot about how we are to be. We're to, when we come to church and we build relationships, it shouldn't be like, hey, how you doing? See you later. I'll see you when I see you. Our relationships are to be more developed than that. The bonds that we form, we're family. And there should be a sense of keeping in touch with each other, of, of, of developing those relationships, praying for one another, visiting one another. Because in the end, we are family. There's no such thing as an antisocial Christian. I recall some years ago, a friend of mine went to a church 
and uh, at the church they had spoken to the pastor and invited him over. Actually, recently, even another friend of mine told me a story where his pastor said to the board of elders, he said, well, why don't you visit people, or why don't you talk to people? Why do you leave immediately and not spend time? He says, well, I'm, I'm not social. I'm antisocial. There's no such thing as an antisocial Christian, never mind an antisocial pastor. Now, you may have some antisocial tendencies, right? We all have some progress to make. But in the end of the day, we're social creatures, and, and the bonds we form among the church should be lasting bonds. Next, let's look at part two of the sermon, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Verse 24. So, so, so Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul on the journey. But for whatever reason, they do not go along with him to Syria. They stay in Ephesus. I believe it was agreed upon between them. Paul says, listen, you guys stay here. I'm coming back. I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to go to Antioch. But in the meantime, Paul trusted Aquila and Priscilla enough to say, listen, you stay here. Start preaching the gospel. Start planting seeds. Get the work going. And when I come back, we'll, we'll pick up where, where I left off. He wanted to come back to Ephesus, but in the meantime, he trusted this couple. And so he leaves them there. And, and, and this was a good choice. And so at this point, we read that uh, a Jew named Apollos, the native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scripture, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke to Adako the things concerning Jesus, but he knew only of the baptism of John, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So evidently, Paul, I mean, Aquila and Priscilla were attending the synagogue service, as they would have as Jews and uh, reasoning with the Jews and preaching. And so one day this, this man Apollos shows up and he's a Jew as well. And he's a native of Alexandria. And uh, Apollos is, is, you know, was a man who was very gifted, extra- extraordinarily gifted. He was no ordinary person. And when they heard him preach, they were like, wow, who's this guy? And they immediately recognized that God had gifted him. But they also recognized that his theology was a little off. They also recognized his theology was a little off, and they brought him uh, to their home. They took him aside. It's interesting. They could have corrected him publicly, which would have embarrassed him, made him look like a fool, but they did not. They waited till after he preached, and they, they, uh, the implication is they took him aside. They probably invited him to their house. They had lunch with him and said, listen, we, we want to tell you more. Well, well what did... We know that he's a believer. We know he's teaching Jesus is Messiah. So there's something, there's a gap missing, right? There's a gap missing. There's something he doesn't know. Uh, did he miss out on the preaching of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit? More than likely, yes. Um, did he not hear about the, the council meeting in Acts 15? Probably, yes. And so there was probably a gap in his knowledge. Uh, during the American Revolution, there's a story of a, a group of, of pioneers who were up in the West Virginia mountains. And throughout the whole American Revolution, they never left the mountains. They, they had no idea what was coming on, going on. So one day, uh, someone comes to visit them and they says, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're coming here to uh, um, tell you about what's going on. They said, President Washington and Congress just passed the Constitution of the United States. And they looked at them and said, President Washington? Constitution, Congress, 
Last we heard, King George was on the throne. They didn't know anything about a revolution. They never heard of George Washington because they have been in obscurity for quite some time. Remember, we're living in the ancient world. There's no, there's no Twitter. There's no Facebook. There's no uh, iPhone. So news travels a little bit more slower. Apollos is from Alexandria. And so, and so they bring him up to speed and he essentially goes on to uh, continue the ministry of the Lord in a mighty and powerful way. Uh, just a few things to note. Number one, he's from Alexandria. Alexandria is a major city. It's one of the largest cities in the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. Athens may have been the intellectual capital of Greece, but in the empire, it was Alexandria. Alexandria is, is where Egypt is today. It's on the northern coast of Africa, um, and, and it had one of the largest libraries in history, one of the eight wonders of the world, um, if you ever heard about it. It had over 400,000 volumes the largest library in history. Unfortunately, the whole thing burned down. Um, it had also a large Jewish population. It is where the Septuagint version of the Old Testament was translated. Uh, some of you who read your Bibles see that when it refers to the Septuagint, you'll see LXX, which in Roman numerals is 70. There were 70 members of the translation team of Jewish rabbis and scholars who uh, translated the Old Testament Hebrew to Greek. Um, that all took place in Alexandria. This was a place of great academic learning. Um, it was also a place where much of the early leadership in the church developed. Uh, some of the church fathers like Origen and Clement, Athanasius, who, who fought great battles against the Arian heresies, all hailed from Alexandria. And so, uh, unfortunately, though, Alexandria was also a place um, that, that fell into Platonism. They seek to unite uh, Christian theology and Greek philosophy. And so there were some heresies that came out of there as well. But, but I, I, I bring out this background to show you that, that Apollos uh, has some incredible background and credentials uh, which would indicate why he's so gifted. This is a man who is very smart, he's intellectual, and he is also a great communicator. He's a great communicator. That's also what we're told. So not only is he smart, uh, but he's a great communicator. And uh, his communication was, was not because he himself was gifted, but he had great command of the Scripture. Uh, here the ESV said he was competent in Scriptures, but the King James Version says he was mighty in the Scriptures. I love that, frame, that, that phrase, mighty in the Scriptures. Now, this is referring to the Old Testament, but it meant this. It meant that Apollos knew the Bible and knew it well. He had great command of Scripture. It says he powerfully refuted the Jews. You did not want to get into a debate with Apollos because he beat you every time. He was an expert swordsman. This was a man who can slice and dice with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. He was a man who committed himself to study the word of God and that is why he was mighty in the word of God. And I think that this is something we should all aspire to, to be mighty in the word of God. Not just pastors, not just missionaries, but every Christian. He was not a pastor, he was not a missionary. He was an ordinary Christian, but he committed himself to study the word. He was mighty in the scriptures and he was a great evangelist for the kingdom of God. 
John Broadus, one of the founders of Southern Seminary and professor of homiletics, was lecturing his students nine days before he died. And in this lecture, he said, gentlemen, and I quote, if this were the last time I was permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour, endeavoring to impress upon you two things, true piety, and like Apollos, be men mighty in the scripture. Brought us then paused for a moment, and he looked at his students with his piercing eyes, gazed upon them, and over and over he repeated in the slow, impressive style, be mighty in the scriptures. Be mighty in the scriptures. Be mighty in the scriptures. Oh, that we would study to show ourselves approved. Second Timothy 2.15, that we would not be ashamed and rightly handle, rightly divide the word of truth. I could tell you something. If you commit yourself to be mighty in the scriptures, you will find yourself greater able to resist temptation. You will find yourself greater able to live the life of God. You will find yourself greater able to serve God. You will find yourself greater able to communicate with unbelievers. You will find yourself better able to debate with unbelievers and skeptics. But if you treat this scripture like it's just a passing thing, you will not accomplish much for the kingdom. Be men and women, mighty of the scriptures. Finally, we look at Priscilla and Aquila as a husband-wife team. They are mentioned six times in the Bible. Paul three times and Luke three times. And it is important to see that they had a vital impact on the kingdom of God. One of the interesting things is in four out of six cases, Priscilla is mentioned first. That's unusual uh, in ancient times. But clearly there was a reason for this. There's been many uh, suspicions. Some have suggested, well, maybe Priscilla was the one who was stronger in the word and theology. Uh, Perhaps she had a more dynamic personality. Or perhaps she came from a a position of wealth, of prominence. Um, We don't know. We can only assume. But, But there are cases, even we could think of our own modern day, when you think of certain couples and you'll, you'll mention the wife first and the husband second, uh, generally that w- woman will have a, a, more, a, a personality that's more upfront and that you could think of more quickly uh, than the husband. Uh, maybe the husband is more quiet and reserved. I know I found myself in certain scenarios like that as well. However, this doesn't mitigate or undermine uh, Aquila's role in, in this ministry and in this partnership, and it doesn't elevate Uh, Priscilla to the point to say, well, you know, she's so gifted, she ought to be a pastor. She sat under Paul's ministry for five years, but she was content to be with her husband as a husband-wife team, and the two of them served God together. They went from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus, and then eventually back to Rome, and they did great things for the kingdom of God. And this is encouragement for, I think, all the women out here to really study the scripture, to be uh, engaged in ministry, Um, not only as in your own personal lives, but those of you who are married to be supportive of your husbands and enhance their ministry. Uh, You can be so vital to the kingdom of God when you are committed to the word of God. Um, Most scholars even think that it was Priscilla who was the one who instructed Apollos in the better way, uh, that she had a, a greater grasp with theology. And I've seen that over the years. I've seen couples where 
the wives have greater understanding of theology than their husbands. And, and that's, just, that's just the case sometimes. And you know what it teaches us? It teaches us that unlike the Old Testament where, where women were silenced, uh, women play more of an active role in the New Testament church. And Paul frequently applauds the role of women, whether it's Euodia or Syntyche from Philippi or Junius and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis for their singular aid in the book of Romans or whether it's Lydia in Philippi or Phoebe the deaconess, deaconess at uh, Syncrie. No, far from demeaning women, the New Testament church was full of supportive women who encouraged um, the church, who strengthened the church and were educated in the scriptures and were educated in general and they had a robust life in the church. Finally, Apollos would go on to Corinth and have a successful ministry there. In Paul's absence, he would join Priscilla and Aquila. They would go back to Corinth, and it says that he would strengthen the churches there and powerfully refute the Jews. Remember, the Jews in Corinth were the ones who wanted to, to hang Paul. And Apollos shows up, and, and, and you know what I think is the most interesting thing here, Apollos is a very gifted man. He is more gifted than Paul. Yes, that's... Paul admits that even in his writings. We'll see that in just a moment. But you know what? Apollos and Paul never saw themselves in competition with one another. Paul wasn't threatened by Apollos. If anything, he saw Apollos as a great, great aid to the kingdom of God, as a great ally to the kingdom of God. And I think it's important for us to note that there are people with different giftings in the church. And we ought not to elevate people who are more gifted and articulate or persuasive above others and say, well, they're more prominent, they're more important. No. We all have a different role in the kingdom, a different level of giftedness. This isn't a competition. This isn't, this isn't you, know, uh, uh, you know, American Idol. We're not here sitting before a panel of judges to see who's the most gifted preacher. We're all participating. We're all laborers in the vineyard. We all have a part to play. Whether you're Apollos, who's just blowing everyone out of the water with his preaching, or whether you're Paul, the simple theologian, going from town to town, encouraging people, or whether you are uh, Aquila and Priscilla, the husband-wife team, who has people over their houses and encourages them, whether you're Dr. Luke, who's hanging out in Philippi, encouraging the church there, or Timothy, the young man who's preaching in Thessalonica, or whether you're and coming back to Ephesus, or whether you're Silas, the elder from Jerusalem, who's kind of in the background, but a big strength for the church, everybody has a part to play. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Even though you now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? You're acting like, like, like people who don't have the Spirit. 
What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. So neither he who plants nor waters is anything, but it is God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, God's building. And according to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one takes care of how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? And he goes on to say in verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. We, I think, make too much of men in the church. There are men who are greatly gifted. I thank God for the John MacArthur's and I, I thank God for the Steve Lawson's and I, and I thank God, but we ought not to say, I'm of John MacArthur. I'm of Paul Washer. I'm of Bob Ginzera. I'm of Ed Moore. No. We belong to Christ. And God has gifted us each differently, uniquely, whatever context we are called, and we praise him for it. Let me encourage you all this. We all have a role to play. Find your gift. Look around you. Look within the church. Have you been serving here a while? You see new people here? Don't just walk out that door and go home and go look at television. Be like, a, be like Aquila and Priscilla. Invite someone to your home. See if they know the way more clearly. Disciple young Christians. You who are older in the faith. Disciple those who are new in the faith. The worst attitude, I think, in the church is when they say, let the pastors do it. It's their job. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. We all have a role to play. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the, for the examples in Scripture we have. We pray that you would help us to uh, emulate those examples. I pray, that, uh, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us a humility for the gifts you've given us and the gifted men who are in our churches. Thank you, Lord, for the various abilities and the servants that you've given to your church. Help us, Lord, to see our own role to serve, to love you, and to glorify you, for it is all about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we stand to sing, let me just remind you that uh, Anthony's going to sing a song of closing. And when we dismiss, I want everybody, all the members to begin to start lining up for pictures when Joe sets up. Can we give him 10 minutes? Yeah.